Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Hard to beat the intro for the last episode. Oh, the beep or yeah, god damn, <laughs> truly our greatest moment. How do we even begin? Let us begin oh, where all gosh. stories begin, at the beginning, <laughs> with a white man <laughs> having a quarter life crisis. In my head, I just imagine—is it Sir Ian McKellen that does the intro for Nightmare Before Christmas? Is it? I think it is the original. Is it? Yeah, I think so. Or it's Patrick Stewart, maybe. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it is. It's Patrick, Patrick Stewart. Stewart. T'was a long time ago, much longer now than it seems, in a place you, what? Might have seen in your dreams. What? Okay, this causes a dream a question. is a wish your heart makes. <laughs> How long ago did Nightmare Before Christmas take place? A long time ago. But not really because it like looks like the 1950s. Longer now than it seems. So it seems contemporary <laughs> because all the houses have like lights. Yes. And electricity. Mm-hmm. But really it was in like 5000 BC. No. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> Later than 5000 BC? Mm-hmm. 1 BC. Maybe. No, that's earlier. No. Wait. BC works in reverse. Yeah. AD works... So that's closer to us. But we know what happened after Jesus Christ. Zero, zero BC because it's about Christmas. Fuck. Okay. 1863. Mm. No, I think that's when the Grinch takes place. And it's clearly after that because the Grinch has returned Christmas already. Oh, right. Although, did the Grinch steal Christmas after Jack did? Like, who stole it first? Well, they're not the same universe. Says who? The Grinch stole Christmas from the Who's who live on a snowflake. But that, that melts that... on Jack Skellington's tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're happening simultaneously. Yeah. And One snowflake in yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas could be the could entirety be of the Grinch story. All of Whoville. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. Do you have a big boy? A big boy. You got a big little goblin boy. We're in. We're in. We're in. <sighs> Welcome back to Mystery Team Inc. The podcast where Kayla does that opening all of a oh sudden. Oh my god, all of a sudden. Yeah, I was just you like, didn't execute it, but you know, set it up. I, said, I thought maybe you would <laughs> pick up my slack. I guess I did. Yeah. Good for me. Good for us. Good for we. <laughs> Good for we. Um, right. Do you have business? Of course I do. I love when you have business. It's You're my business. best friend. It's business time. Okay, we have like 15 shout outs today. 
Mm. Love it. Um, yeah, so most of you probably know we've been doing Goosebumps Live now for like a couple weeks, and it's been so much fun. If you're not watching, you're really missing out. Yeah. And I don't say that about things I do often. We've made new friends. We've made so many friends. So a couple shout-outs to them. Should One we shout-out to, to Feet Men? Oh, yeah, we got, we'll get to that. Okay, 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 okay. Um, the first one is Danny. Danny did it. Oh, my heart. Who makes me so happy. He uh, does live streams on Instagram and on Live AF. He uh, makes beats and he freestyles. And do he, we have his exact um, yeah. handle? Let's do it. Will you look it up? He, um, uh, on one of his freestyles that I was watching, he worked our JFK episode into the freestyle. <laughs> <laughs> it made me really happy. His Instagram handle is Danny did it underscore D-H-K-C. So go check him out. He's, He's amazing. Hilarious and brilliant. He always chimes in on our um on our live stream and he's so much fun. Suraf Salat Um Nobel tolls for us. So creepy. He's amazing. Um another shout out to Thinkquarium, who yes. wrote us probably the nicest review anyone's ever written I us. Literally so well written. Cried. Yeah. It made me really happy because I'm glad that people appreciate like not just our humor but i think at our core what means the most to me is when people feel like they're part of our community and like part yeah. of our friendship and uh, feel like they belong with us because i think that that's the kind of community that we want to create is mm-hmm. like a community of inclusivity and uh yeah um so thank you thinkquarium and another shout out to echidna who's also been tuning in we shouted her out before yeah. but she's great her name is she just continues to be incredible yeah um and she yeah we love her um another shout out to kate kate marks the spot which is um the cousin of my good friend grace who recently got married she her cousin started listening found it found us and wrote me so shout out to her um kate you're awesome yeah hi welcome to the fam welcome to the mystery team um yeah i think that's the that's everybody yeah. Am I missing anybody? The feet men, that's it. Oh, yeah. A couple of guys tuned into our live stream and were trying to get Kayla to, like, show them her feet. And it's the worst. Here's the thing. Like, no shame in your game. We're not kink shaming, but just not the place it's or the not, time. Yeah, read the room. Read the stream. We're trying to do spooky stories from, like, from children's books, yeah. so that's the maybe problem? not the place for that. Okay. Shall we ceremonially crack the beer in honor of our new friends? Yeah. Welcome to the mystery team. Welcome to the team. And if you haven't been checking out Mystery Stream Inc., you've yeah. been missing out. Tune in. It's so fun. Okay. So we're doing a big one. This is a, a big boy. Um, should we, do we want to... I'm nervous. Why? <laughs> because I did so much research and we're not even done doing research. Mm-mm. Um, okay, so we're starting what is probably going to be a three-parter mm-hmm. on Robert Durst, <laughs> the creepiest goblin man New York ever saw. Mm-hmm. Which is saying something, because there's a lot of there's goblin, a lot men, of in goblin men in New York. in New York. His eyes... I can't look at them. ...are black holes. This is an interesting thing that you bring up, and I will address this later. I don't think that he is actually... Human. <laughs> close this is up for debate and I'll get into this later but I think there's a strong uh, argument to be made that he's not by nature a psychopath uh, I will I talk a tiny 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 bit about that great I'm excited to hear what you have to say Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Do you want to just dive in? I guess we should. Okay. So I'm going to start with the their, a little bit about their family history. Um, Robert's grandfather. Hold on. Wait, really quick. Yeah. Can I just give the context that if you haven't seen the jinx, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. So most of our, our main source is the jinx. Um, and then a couple other internet sources. Uh, but most of it is from the jinx. Although I will say the jinx is chronologically bananas oh yeah the storytelling is incredible but i had to like rearrange everything yeah into a timeline great took a very long time i'm excited so (sighs) namaste also i have to tell you that when i finished this research i watched criminal minds as a palate cleanser (laughs) like i it what it is so Icky, yeah, and so, and he's so, he's just, he's icky, so icky, he's so icky that I was like, I have to watch something about like a different criminal because yeah. I don't, I won't watch anything else, right? I like, oh, he's a little goblin. Um, okay, so Robert's grandfather, Joseph Durst, immigrated to the United States from Austria Hungary in 1902 with three dollars to his name. He worked as a tailor in New York City. And then, and he saved up his money. And then in 1912, he became a partner in the dress manufacturer he was working at. It became called Durst and Rubin. And he used the profits from that dressmaking business to invest in real estate and purchased his first building in 1915, which was the Century Building at 1 West 34th Street. Um, and then in, in 1926, he acquired the original Temple Emmanuel at Fifth Avenue and 43rd Street, which is like this historic temple in Manhattan. And he's Jewish. And then he demolished it to build a commercial building. And I was like, what are you doing? Already off to a bad start. Bad start. Bad karma. And then in 1927, he also founded the Durst Organization. And then when he died in 1974, his son Seymour, who's Robert's father took over the family business. Um, The Durst organization is currently one of the top five or six owners of property in all of Manhattan, and they uh, have an $880 million family dynasty. Like, just so much money. Like, an unfathomable amount of money. Um, So Seymour and his wife Bernice had four children. Robert was the oldest, and then his next youngest brother was Douglas, who is now the current president and chairman of the Durst organization. And then we have the outliers, Tom and Wendy, who are philanthropists and writers. Hmm. And we don't know how that happened. Right. Um, Okay, so Robert, our sweet baby goblin, Robert Durst, nightmare demon, was born April 12th, 1943. He grew up in Scarsdale, New York. Um, He had and still has this intense rivalry with his brother Douglas mm-hmm. um, that started at like I think he says like the age of five um, I read somewhere that as children they went to counseling for their sibling rivalry which is at that point it's not a rivalry that's such you're... a rich person thing to do my parents did that did they <laughs> yeah they sent me the fur I started therapy when I was six years old because my parents were tired of me complaining about my brother bullying me but it turns out he was 
abusing me. Yeah. Like he was like beating me up. And right. I was like, how about instead of just sending me to a therapist where he's like, oh, boys will be boys. And then gives me like a finger puppet. Like, why don't you discipline your child? That's not sibling rivalry, though. That's abuse. Yeah, that's true. They were not abusing each other. They just went to. They just camp- hated each that's other. That's what I'm saying. They just went to counseling because they were competitive. Yeah. And also because they like, and this will come up later, but it's, they basically like from the day they could like understand English were told like one of you is going to take over the organization. Who's it going to be? Oh, that might play into that weird rivalry that Mm -hmm. they had. And they were like, it's going to be Robert, but Robert, you seem a little like, I don't know if you can do it. And Douglas really wanted it. It reminds me a little bit of the Kennedy brothers. Yes. Oh, it is very Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah. When you're in, like, a waspy family like that. Mm-hmm. Although I guess they're Jewish, but, yeah. Yeah, but when you're, like, a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy family with, like, a legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a 1953 psychiatrist report from when Robert was 10 mentioned, quote, personality decomposition and possibly even schizophrenia. Personality decomposition is the creepiest phrase I've ever heard yes. in my entire life. And it, like, Also the title of my grunge album. Personality decomposition. Um, yeah, so I don't think he's a psychopath. I I really just think he, like, has some kind of undiagnosed schizoid something. And also the narcissism that comes from... I honestly genuinely think most of it's narcissism. Yeah, because he can't be touched. Yeah. His whole life, like, he had so much money that he could never, ever be touched. I also feel that he didn't... I think what he probably has is a combination of an attachment disorder and narcissism. He absolutely has an attachment disorder, and I will tell you why. Great. <laughs> so, um, Robert describes his memories of his, like, early, early life as, quote, happy, happy, happy. But he says it like a goblin because mm-hmm. he talks like a goblin. So, I think the line reading would be, like, happy, happy, happy. <laughs> and then... Which is how you know it's true. Yeah. Um, that's actually like, there are moments in the jinx where they're interviewing him and you can just, you can tell he's being very genuine. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those moments yeah. where it, it's like, you like, that's all you have to say. If your childhood was that happy, then like, that's what it was. Um, okay. So then one night when Robert was seven years old, his father came and got him and was like, come with me. I want you to see mommy. And this is what he says. He says, we all looked out a hall window out onto the roof and there was mommy. And I waved at mommy. I don't know if she saw me. It never went through my mind. What is she doing out on the roof in her nightie? I mean, it just didn't focus on me. I don't know what that means. There's mommy. Wave at mommy. Okay, now go back to bed. All of a sudden I heard the maid shouting, she's off the roof. It was a long, long fall. Um, so there were four adults who witnessed Bernice's quote unquote fall. And they reported to the press that she fell and she definitely killed herself. Right. It was suicide. It was suicide. Um, the fact that he refers to her as mommy in this story, even though he, I mean, obviously he's talking about a time when that's what he called her, but the no, way no, that no. he talks about her as mommy still at yeah. like 79. That's the attachment disorder. It's the attachment disorder. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and he says that it's a, tra- it, it's a trauma indicator. Yeah, absolutely. He said it never left him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after his mom died, he started running away all the time. Yeah. Like he would just like run away. And sometimes they had to call the police to find him. And, uh, his dad like never did anything to compensate for the loss of their mother. He didn't come home more. He didn't spend more time with them. Uh, 
he just like was still an absentee father, which is very, it's all very sad, but you know, you don't have to. Yeah. Uh, you can hold both like feeling like feeling bad for them as a family and also hold knowing that I'm having trouble with it. You can feel bad for that child and not, and then still know that that adult is a monster. Do you know what I mean? That's so helpful. You're welcome. Yeah. Feel bad for the child, but know the adult is a monster. I love that. You're so smart. Stop it. That's fine. Stop. You're so pretty and stop funny. Stop it. Oh my god. <laughs> um, go on. Robert says that in his <laughs> no about me. <laughs> oh, uh, did you run out of stuff to say? Ye- no. Uh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Robert says that in his early teen years, he confronted his father about how he was like being a piece of shit, and he just like wouldn't talk about it. Sure, which is sad. that tracks. Yeah, totally tracks. Um. He went to Scarsdale High School, where his classmates described him as a loner. Surprise. Uh, He then went to Lehigh University, got a BA in economics, graduated in 1965, and then enrolled in a doctorate program at UCLA, where he met a woman named Susan Berman. Susan Berman... He gets to UCLA and he meets Susan Berman and she's this like wealthy, high society woman from Vegas whose dad was a mobster. Uh, both her parents died when she was very young. So they had that connection and they like became best friends right off the bat. Um, Susan graduated from UCLA in 67 with a BA in journalism. And then she graduated from UC Berkeley in 1969. Nice. With a master's in journalism. Nice. (laughs) And she went on to become a novelist. And I can't find what her second book was, but her first one was called Easy Street. And it's about her life as a mobster's daughter. But she didn't realize that her dad was a mobster until she was 21. Mm -hmm. Because her friend was like, have you read this crime book? And she was like, what crime book? And she like went and opened the book and it was like, your dad was a mobster. And she was like, what? Um, have you ever watched Mob Wives? No. It's kind of like that. Like, they're all, like, they're all, like, really proud of the fact that, because most of the Mob Wives are daughters of, like, big mobsters. Do you know what I mean? So their husbands are, like, second team? Well, they're, like, the new, they're, like, the next generation. Like, by this, by the time that the Mob Wives are the Mob Wives, it's, like, their dads are, like, their grandpas are, like, Lucky Luciano. And their dads are like, you know, like Jimmy the Bull, like, you know, whatever. And, but they marry like these like small time mobsters who are slowly inheriting like the mob. But it's so oh funny God. because the way they talk about their dads is always like, he was the best dad. And That's he was also, was. and he also was a murderer. But they always like, they just like love but their they dads. Idolize, she they idolized them, her yeah. father. Yeah. That's so strange. Yeah. My dad's never killed anyone, and I'm like, he's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so Robert dropped out of UCLA in 1969. Nice. Because you're, like, so wealthy. Why do you need a master's degree? Stop it. And you already found your person. Yeah. They never dated, but they were, like, each other's people. Uh, He went back to New York, and he started working for the Durst Organization 
sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that all wealthy children work exactly. for their parents' organization. Exactly. Uh, he says, uh, I had various important sounding titles, but I didn't really go there very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's so real. That's so real. And then, in the fall of 1971, Robert met Kathleen Kathy McCormick. He was had like peace on the family business. He was living in Vermont. Um, and he like came into the city with some friends to party and he met her while they were out. She's like this adorable little blonde dental hygienist from Long Island. She was in school at the Albert Einstein Medical School in Manhattan to become a pediatrician. That sounds like you made it up. I know. Is there really an Albert Einstein Medical School? Mm-hmm. That sounds like something I would I think it's a teaching hospital. Yeah. It just sounds like something that, like, someone who's not a very good <laughs> novelist would write. Yeah. Like, or, yes. or like a Hallmark movie Yeah, like job. the William Shakespeare School of Writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like the job that the love interest would have in a Hallmark movie. And I love it because Einstein was not a doctor. That's what, I, that's what makes me say that. Yeah. So, she was working to become a pediatrician, which is really cute. Yeah. Um... Kathy's family describe it as Robert coming on as Prince Charming and Kathy was Cinderella. And she was like head over heels, swept off her feet, obsessed. Um, Robert says of Kathy, she was very outgoing and social and got along with people real good. So it was perfect because I don't get along with people. Most people don't get along with me. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I relate to that. I relate to it a little bit. <laughs> Um, so after two dates, Robert asked Kathy to move to Vermont with him. Um, which if you're a rich guy, seems like Prince Charming. And if you're anyone else is creepy as hell. So creepy. But they were like obsessed with each other. Creepy. Um, she. No one should like anyone. There, I said it. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, everyone should just hate everyone and be alone forever. You don't have to hate everyone. Just no one should like anyone else that much. Oh, no, no one should like, like anyone. Right. Okay. So, she moved in with him in January of 1972. So, it's been, like, four months tops. Um, they opened a health food store together in Vermont called All Good Things, which is ironic. Kathy's best friend, Gilberta, says of her first impression of seeing them together, she says, they were in love. There are no two ways about it. They were in love. Which is, like, cute. But, like, mm, I don't know. I mean, you do know. I don't know. Because you know what happened. I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. So, in March of 1972, they started talking about getting married. They were like, we're going to get married. We're going to live in Vermont. We're going to run this health food store. This is all we want for the rest of our lives forever. And then Seymour Durst was like, except... No. This is exactly like Kennedy's. <laughs> yeah. Um, Robert, like, did not want to work for the Durst organization at all. He just wanted to run his stupid health food, health food store with his hot little wife. And then he got pressured into selling the health food store, and they moved back to New York so that Robert could work in the family business, which Ooh. is a huge bummer. Kathy's family was, like, not a huge fan. 
Um, I wonder fucking why. <laughs> they said that he... Have you met Robert Durst? <laughs> Have you ever, ever even met Robert Durst? <laughs> you know what's funny is one of my friends texted me like three years ago and was like, I am at the same coffee shop as Robert Durst in Silver Lake. Here? Yes. What was he doing? Trying to murder me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so creepy. I can't believe he's a person. It's just... Like... <laughs> <laughs> so... Her family said that he, like, was never nice to them, never engaged with them, never even tried. Her he was mom... engaged with her. <laughs> uh, her mom describes him as an oddball, but you can tell she's, like, being nice. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Robert's, once again, classic evaluation of this situation was, Kathy's mother was very interested in Bob Durst liking me and Bob Durst conversing with me. Her favorite reading material was the magazine Yankee, the New England thing, and she would want to come talk to me about the articles in Yankee, and I'm not interested in talking about canning. <laughs> <laughs> He's like such a fucking character. Like, you could not write the shit that he said. Once again, though, I also relate to not wanting to talk to anyone about anything, yeah. and people want to talk to me about stuff all the time. I know, but the but difference I is don't that murder you people about don't it. murder people about it. And there is a thing in most people where we are like, no, I don't want to talk to you about fucking canning. But, but I, I will, will do it because anyway. it's important to the person that I supposedly love. Right. You know? He couldn't do it. I just imagine him just like, you just see it like power down behind his eyes and he just like walks away in the middle of a conversation about I guarantee about you canning. that's what he did. Yeah. Um, there was a really good exchange in the Jinx where Andrew Jarecki, the director, says... These experiences were kind of like Bob meets the average American family. And Bob goes, more than meet. Bob is forced to spend time with the average <laughs> American family. Bob is supposed to be polite and cooperative and pleasant and engage in the same conversations that they are. And I just couldn't do that. This is what makes me say that he's not, like, born and bred a psychopath. No, he's like, just an asshole. He's just an asshole. He's truly he's just, a, just narcissist a fucking narcissist who doesn't asshole. see people as people. Yeah. Yeah. He sees people as useful or not useful. Right. Or, like, problematic or useful. Right. Um, so, then, the marriage went along Bob was working at. Durst organization. He hated it. Kathy was going to medical school, whatever. In February of 1976, Kathy found out that she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. They had previously agreed, and I'm going to use the word agreed very loosely because I can't imagine that Bob lets anybody agree with anything except for what he wants, mm -hmm. that if she ever got pregnant, she would get an abortion. And then Kathy got pregnant. She was like, mm, change my mind. And he, do you want to hear another Robert impression? Mm-hmm. He said, I told you I didn't want children. We agreed that we wouldn't have children. And now you're telling me that you're pregnant, which you're in charge of that stuff, not me. And you want to keep the baby. You keep the baby, you're going to get divorced from me. Which is so fucked up. Yeah. So she got the abortion that she did not want. That's what's fucked up to me. Honestly, like, yeah, get the divorce. Get a divorce. <laughs> Go. But that'll come up. Don't yeah. worry. Don't worry. This tangled web gets even more tangled. <laughs> <laughs> it's about to get a lot more tangled. <laughs> so. And dangerous. It's, it's already dangerous. 
So the the way they frame this in the jinx is so goddamn funny in a really, really dark way where Robert's like, you know, like things started to deteriorate and I didn't know why. And Jarecki is like, well, can you like bring it back to like one point? And he's like, well, I guess it was uh, she started changing what I made her get an abortion. <laughs> yeah, right. And you're like, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah that's what it sure. was. So he was super- objection. Jarecki <laughs> leading the witness. <laughs> he needed to be led. Um, so it's the relationship after that just deteriorated so quickly. Um, Kathy. I wonder why <laughs> was it when I made you forcefully abort our child? <laughs> that one. It was that one. It was that one. Could have been anything. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who can say? Could have been anything. <laughs> it could have been any of those things. Um, so finally, Kathy was like, hey, I don't like that you're making all the decisions. I want some independence. And Robert was like, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> no. Nope. 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 Uh, nope. 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 You don't like my Robert Durst impression? It's freaky. You don't like it. I do like it. I just hate it. I'm just a goblet billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually only worth a hundred million now. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just a goblin hundred million. Yeah. <laughs> because Douglas has all the equity now. Well, my brother took all the equity. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they started arguing more and more, and then eventually the arguments, of course, escalated into physical violence. I think. It was 99% him hitting her, but it was probably 1% her, like, pushing him away. Yeah. You know? But I'm going to do 100% he was abusing her. Um, another ri- just delicious Robert quote is, Jarecki is like, do you remember when, like, when the argument started getting physical? And I, this motherfucker goes, I don't remember the first time I slapped her or hit her. But by 1981, our life was half arguments, fighting, slapping, pushing, wrestling. But he was like, I don't remember like when, like the first time I hit her. I but I know when it had been going on for years. At but that I point. know when it was like a long term thing. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. Robert says by 1981, they, it was just like totally bananas horrible uh this takes us to the evening of january 30th 1982 kathy was in new york city and she went out with her friend geraldine mckinry i think is how you pronounce that last name geraldine recalls that they got back to the penthouse robert was in vermont or no he was in south salem and the first thing Kathy did when they got back was to call Robert and be like, hi, I'm home. And Geraldine was like, why did you do that? And Kathy was like, oh, he just, he, he likes to know where I am all the time. And then she was like, Ugh, like, you know, ugh, I have to wake up early because we're going to our house in South Salem tomorrow and I really don't want to go. And Geraldine was like, why don't you just like not go? And she was like, he would kill me. And Geraldine was like, cool. Problem. Um, so on Sunday, January 31st, 
Robert and Kathy go up to their house in South Salem. Um, that afternoon, Gilberta, who I mentioned earlier, her best friend, was having like a get together with her family and Kathy called her and was like, I have to get out of here. I have to leave. And Gilberta was like, okay, come over. So Kathy went to Gilberta's house for dinner and Gilberta remembers that like Robert was calling constantly trying to get Kathy to come home. And every time Kathy hung up the phone, she was like visibly shaken. And then eventually she capitulated and was like, okay, I'll, I'll come back. And she went to Gilberta and she was like, promise me that if something happens, you'll check it out. I'm afraid of Bobby. Um, I'm going to tell you that evening, according to Robert Durst's original story, because nobody really knows what happens, but this is what he originally said happened. He says that Kathy returned to South Salem at around 7.30, loaded, and was like, I want to go back to the city. And he was like, no. She was like, no, I'm going back to the city. I'm taking the car. And they argued about her going back to the city. Then they argued about her taking the car back to the city. It escalated. It became a quote-unquote pushing, shoving argument. Um, And eventually, Kathy agreed to take the 917 train out of the Katona station in South Salem back into the city. So Robert says he dropped her off, watched her get on the train started on his way home on the way home he saw his neighbor bill mayer and he stopped in to have a drink with bill he went home he took their dog he went on a walk while he was on the walk he called kathy from a payphone at around 11 15 11 30 she was like i'm home i'm safe i'm watching tv and he was like great hung up The press also reported that the night doorman saw Kathy go up to her penthouse at around 11, 15, 30. On Monday morning, (coughs) Kathy had a clinic class at the um, William Shakespeare School of Medical Science. (laughs) (laughs) She called up the dean and was like, I'm sick. I'm not coming into class. And he was like, cool. Later that day, she was supposed to meet Gilberta in the city. And Gilberta just, like, waited and waited, and she never showed up. So Gilberta called their friend Eleanor Schwank, who also had not heard from Kathy. That same day, Kathy's brother Jim got a call from Rob, who was like, Rob? From Robert, who was like, have you heard from Kathy? And Jim was like, no, I assumed she was with you. And he was like, I don't know where she is. He claims... She wasn't answering his calls, but he wasn't that worried because she was doing what is called a sub-internship at the hospital that often required staying overnight. Then, a few days later, Robert got a call from the medical school, and they were like, Kathy hasn't been showing up to her classes. Do you know where she is? And he was like, no, I don't. I have no idea where she is. That's so strange. Um, at this point, he allegedly, quote-unquote, got worried and went to talk to Seymour and Douglas and they were like she probably ran away because your marriage is garbage don't file a missing persons report because we don't want to deal with the press and he was like okay but then um that Thursday night 
he went to the police and he filed a missing persons report. And he told that story of going to see Bill Mayer and walking the dog and making the phone call from the payphone. And she got on the train and I didn't... Um, the police were like, uh, she probably ran away because your marriage is garbage. The, the detective who took the missing persons report is named uh, Michael Strzok. And he said... When a guy comes in, says the wife is gone right away, you're not jaded about the effort you're going to put forth. But it's like, yeah, well, you know, maybe she's just tired of this guy. Maybe he's a banana and she doesn't just want to involve herself anymore. And she took off. That happens all the time. I've never heard anyone refer to a shitty man as a banana. Really? I feel like we've dated a lot of bananas. We absolutely have, but we haven't had a word for it. Until now. Until now. Although one of my friends did describe the guys we date as socks, Mm -hmm. which I think is really good. Um, so they were just like, eh, get out of here. We don't give a fuck about women. And then two or three weeks after she disappeared, Gilberta and Geraldine and Eleanor were like... Mystery team. They fully mystery team inked it. Like, they went into the police station and they were like, what the fuck is going on? And they were like, uh, she probably ran away because her husband was garbage. And they were like, no. They described all the violence and they were like, They were fighting. She was miserable. He was beating her. And they were like, um, we don't give a fuck. Gilberta (laughs) says, quote, I became a little annoying to a lot of people. I became a lot annoying to some people. Mm -hmm. Um, so nobody. Same sister all the time. For real. And every, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. That's just who I am. (laughs) Yeah, you got to get shit done. So they took matters into their own hands. I have not, I have been racking my brain trying to come up with a fun name for this team. And I can't. So if you can think of anything, I would love it. So they took matters into their own hands and they started investigating. Geraldine took the 915 from the Katona station and just like went around to everyone with a picture of Kathy and was like, have you seen her? Have you seen her? Have you seen her? She also stood outside the William Shakespeare School of Medical Science and Math and showed them pictures of Kathy through like five or six shifts and was like, have you seen her? Have you seen her? Have you seen her? Um, then one day they called their friend, Geraldine called their friend Alan and was like, hey, um, do you want to steal some trash? <laughs> and Ellen was like, absolutely. Yep. Yes, I do. So they drove up to South Salem and they stole all of Robert's garbage, mm-hmm. which is, I'm obsessed with them. Me too. They took it home. In the dead of night, in right? In the dead of night. They describe it as like one of the, Ellen had like the car running and all the doors open. Yeah. And Gilberta was just like throwing trash bags into the car and they just like slammed the doors and yeah. peeled out. I want a movie about them. Me too. Uh, so they took it home and they started going through it and they discovered that Robert was throwing away all of Kathy's stuff, like all of her clothes and her books, her school books. And they were like, he knows she's not coming back. They also found the list, which was in Robert's handwriting, and it said this. <laughs> First line, town dump. Second line, bridge. Third line, dig. Fourth line, boat, other, and the other is underlined. Next line, shovel or question mark. Last line, car, truck, rent. And they were like, this is a list of 
how to get rid of a body. So they took it to Michael Strzok and he was like, this doesn't mean anything. This is a list of places to go to like think. Number one, town dump. Mm-hmm. This is where I go to think mm-hmm. and look out on the mountains of garbage and pretend that I am the garbage king. Mm-hmm. Number two, bridge. Bridge. This is where I go to think and look out on the lake and pretend I'm the lake king. <laughs> Number three, dig. dig. This is where I go to think and pretend I'm the dirt king. <laughs> boat other. This is where I go to think and dump my wife said, but I mean, think about being the boat king. <laughs> other. <laughs> this is where I go to think and pretend about being the, think about being the other king. What about shovel or question mark? That's how I dispose of my wife's dead body. What part didn't you understand in the first 10 things I said? Ah, we gotcha. Did I say dispose of my wife's body? I meant think and pretend I'm the boat king. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. We misheard you. I am the shovel king. I am the shovel king. So they took it to Detective Struck, and he says, in in the documentary, he goes, what does this mean to me in February of 1982? Um, What are you going to do with a shovel shovel in February in South Salem? I'm sure there would be frost. You're not going to be able to dig a hole and bury somebody. So the argument against this being a list of how to bury his, like, get rid of his wife's body was that he wouldn't be stupid enough to try to dig in the frost. That was the argument? Yes. No, he just wouldn't be able to. Oh, okay, yeah. He doesn't address any of the rest of it. He's just like, you couldn't use a shovel in the cold. (laughs) Which we all know, famously, shovels are completely useless in the cold. (laughs) They have to be warm. You have have to warm your shovels up. Store your shovels at um, 75 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. Actually, if you heated up a shovel, that would be a great way to dig in the frost, now that I think about it. That's true. Or you could go to the town dump, or a bridge, or a A boat, boat or other, or a car truck rent. Like, there are other options. That's why he was making a list. Right. There's no bad ideas in brainstorming. (laughs) (laughs) So, then, Robert just stopped talking to everybody. He stopped answering everybody's calls, and he was like, I I don't have a... Like, what? I'm not me. Goodbye. <laughs> and, <laughs> and no, Ken, this isn't Robert. This is his assistant, Robert. I mean, his assistant, Roberta. Bobby. I mean, <laughs> he can't come to the phone right now. Please leave a message. Beep. <laughs> then he just stays on the line listening to the fake message. And he goes, all right, I'll call you back. I mean, uh, beep. <laughs> so, <coughs> at then. Okay, so Robert stopped answering everybody's calls. Then Kathy's family was in New York. I do not know why, but I know that they were in New York. And they called Seymour and, like, got themselves invited over. Smart. Mm -hmm. And they went in and they were like, do you know anything? Is there anything you can do to help? Like, what the fuck is going on? And they were like, they were like, like he got defensive, and he was like, I don't know anything. I don't, I don't know anything. I don't. What? Uh, I'm. Uh, I only have eight hundred eighty million dollars at my disposal. I can't do anything to help. Right. And then, <laughs> Tom, the writer philanthropist, came in in a trench coat and was like, "What's going on here?" And Seymour was like, "This is Kathy's family," and he was like, "This discussion's over. You guys got to go," and like kicked him out. Fucking night. Not suspicious at all. Not at all. Okay. And then basically like it became a cold case. People stopped looking for reasons that will be revealed later in later episodes. But like it became a cold case. Fast forward. I feel like we should take a break. You want to take a break? Yeah. 
Do you think we're like halfway through? No, I have like a f- less than a page left. Oh, well, when are we going to take a break? Now. Okay, great. Let's take a break. All right, we'll be right back. Yay. After these messages. Um, Beep. I will. <laughs> I'm not even going to try and talk. <laughs> We're back. Yay. I found the things that I wanted to say at the top of the show that I couldn't find before. Okay, here are the things that I wanted to say to you. Okay. The first thing is, remember when I used to work at the asylum? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so for our listeners who don't know, I used to work as a casting assistant at the asylum, which you may remember from such hits as (laughs) Sharknado and Sharknado 2. And my... An airplane versus volcano. My debut as a casting associate, which was on Airplane versus Volcano. You peaked. And uh, I found out recently from an old coworker of mine that they are doing a movie. This movie. It's just called Clown. I swear to God. I swear to God. Just in time for the release of It Part 2 or whatever. Act 2. What is it called? It 2. Yeah. Well, they're making a movie called Clown. They truly, every movie they make, they just try less and less. They, I feel like they're topping themselves. <laughs> the second thing I wanted to bring up was, I was listening to an old episode, and you kept saying, to a man. Yeah. But you never actually introduced what that was. So throughout the whole episode, you're like, to a man, said that it was no, this. It's like a turn of phrase. What does that mean? To a man, it means, like, every single person. Give me an example. To a man, they all agreed that nobody saw what happened. Give me another example. To a man, they all agreed. No. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? I've it never just, heard that before. Every single, let me, I'll Google it for you. If you say that a group of men are, do, or think something to a man, you're emphasizing that every one of them is, does, or thinks that thing. Yeah. To a man, the survivors blamed the government. To a man, they all agreed that nobody saw anything. I've never heard that in my entire life. Really? No, really. That's so interesting. And I thought maybe you were like, that was the name of like a county in Wichita, like Texas or something, or like Wisconsin. (laughs) I was like, where is to a man? No. But that's where we should build our home. Into a man? Into a man. Ew. That's so funny. For you, but I forgot what it was. That's great. I'm so glad that I got to teach you that. Thanks. Are you ready to continue down the journey of Robert Durst? Yes. I have like a page left for you. Okay. We're fast forwarding to the year 2000. New York detective Joe Becerra arrests a man named Timothy Martin for public lewdness. Uh, Right before his sentencing, Joe gets a call from Timothy's lawyer, and the lawyer is like, Timothy wants to talk to you. Joe goes in, and Timothy's like, I have some information about a murder that happened in Westchester. I heard that there was a young woman named Kathy Durst who was murdered by her husband at their cottage in South Salem. And Joe Becerra was like, well, shit. He, like, looked into the original investigation he found out that nobody had ever, like, searched or dredged the lake. No one had searched the area around the house. No one had searched the house itself. So they reopened the investigation in 2000. They searched the lake. They searched the house. They searched the area around the house. They found nothing. But they were like, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't 
keep digging because I guess they were like out of the norm and decided to not be negligent law enforcement. Um, so Joe Becerra and Ed Murphy, who is a senior investigator with the Westchester District Attorney, poked around and they found out that in early 1982, Kathy filed for divorce. She asked for $250,000. Three days before she went missing, her divorce agreement was denied. They also looked through the phone records and we keep running into this where like police just won't look at phone records and it's like just fucking look at the phone records and you'll see that the mob was calling what's his name oh my god who who shot jfk who shot jfk that's the real question what is that guy's name lee harvey oswald Oswald. yeah you'll see that lee harvey oswald was on the phone with the mob like they found out that on the tuesday after cassie kathy disappeared the Durst organization received multiple collect calls from a payphone at a laundromat in Ship Bottom, New Jersey. So they poked around a little more. They found out only two people ever called the Durst organization collect, Seymour and Robert. They have confirmation that Seymour was in Manhattan on that Tuesday. In the jinx, Jarecki is like, so you called the office collect. Tell me about that. And Bob goes, I called the office collect. And then this is like, that's, that's it. The actual and Jackie is like, can you like say a little more about that? Like, why? Why did you call the office collect? And Robert was like, it didn't want to pay for it. Let's see more pay for it. The only reason I'm calling is because he wants me to call. <laughs> so he's like, I don't know who made the calls, but I know of quote-unquote, several other people that made collect calls to the office. And Drecky's like, who? And Robert's like, somebody had a beach house and they were calling collect because they didn't want to pay for it and they were getting one of the, like, temp receptionists to accept the calls. And everybody was like, uh-huh. Um... So they went to Ship Bottom, and Ship Bottom, New Jersey, is surrounded by a pine barren. It's just this, like, vast, like, seemingly endless stretch of pine trees. And it is where most, like, eastern mob families dump their bodies. They looked, they didn't find a body, but it's also, like, so huge that there's no possible way that you could... This is also, like, what, 20 years later? Yeah. So then they went and they re-interviewed everyone that they inter- that was interviewed originally. And every single person they talked to was like, if anybody knows anything about the disappearance of Kathy, it's Susan Berman. And that's where I'm going to leave off. Hmm, <laughs> Oh, there's one other thing. When they started going back and re-interviewing everyone, they also found out they interviewed Bill Mayer, his neighbor. And Bill Mayer was like, that didn't happen. Like, I did not have drinks with him at all. Mm -mm. So everything is, like, starting to unravel. And we'll see what happens next. I'm so excited. When we pick back up in episode two. Episode two of Robert Durst, Goblin Man. (laughs) (laughs) What should we call these episodes? I don't know. 
Robert Durst, the trash gang. <laughs> the goblin, the trash goblin. Well, that's it for this episode. Yeah, that's it. That's Robert Durst, part one. Part one. Part one. Great. Well, we'll pick up there when we come back next week with Robert Durst, part two. It just gets creepier. (laughs) Well, thanks for tuning in to this very special series. Go get yourself, like, a sweet treat for, like, getting through that. Yeah. Next week, it'll be two sweet treats because, oh boy. It just gets worse. And we'll be back. Please follow us on The Things. Uh, check out our live stream on Live AF if you want to read Goosebumps yeah, with us. We would love, we want everybody who listens to this to come in. We have a really great crew going, and we are always happy to bring more people into our mm-hmm. crew. And don't forget to check out Danny Did It and Echidna. Mm-hmm. And Thinkquarium on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you all very soon. We'll see you soon. <laughs> no. Fuckle the buck up. Stay in your lane. We don't know. Smooches. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. What do we do? What do we usually do? Mm-hmm. What we should do is crack one beer and split it, and then crack the other beer as the Foley crack. Okay. I can't crack them because of my nails anyway. Okay, princess. I just painted them. Okay, princess. You act like you don't paint your nails <laughs> six times over every time you paint them and can't touch anything for like a day. It's because the glitter is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just mean when you paint them regularly, you do like 10 coats, including three. No, I don't. Yeah, because you have to do like five coats of glitter. And then I you don't. look at it and you're like, no, I don't like this. I do base coat, color, color, glitter, other glitter, top coat. That's six coats. <laughs> they never dry. And that's what I'm saying. That's I also always do it when I'm drinking, which means that inevitably <laughs> in, in that time period, I will have to pee. <laughs> I just can't because I have six coats of nail polish on. Yeah, and they don't dry for like a week. Yeah, because the here's the deal though. What if we had glitter, but that wasn't? It didn't also have nail polish in it. Is that just glitter? (laughs) Yes. And I don't know if you know this. You can just paint your nail in a in a clear coat and then put it in glitter and then clear coat over it. I don't have loose glitter. I know because you think you just invented it, which tells me you don't have it at home. What if we had like glitter nail polish, but without nail polish? (laughs) You said that to me just now. I have it on tape. I know. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz, 
and I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.